Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. Today, before we get to our third week of the Idols, Icons, and Tech series, I just wanted to give you a few updates and a few reminders on things happening in the life of our community. First of all, we are holding two events in June to create safe spaces for LGBTQ people. The first happened this past week on Tuesday night. We had an incredible turnout and an incredible night for our panel night. We've heard from some of you that couldn't be there, and you've been asking if it would be available on the podcast to listen to. The answer is yes, but that'll happen near the end of this month, so keep an eye out around June 30th or July 1st. The second is coming up next Tuesday, June 27th. It's specifically a table group designed for our LGBTQ community members to create a safe space for them. If you identify as a part of the LGBTQ community and call South Bend City Church home, we would love to see you there. We need you to RSVP so we know how many people to expect, and we'll also be communicating directly to those at RSVP where the location is. You can do so by clicking the link in the show notes below, or you can go to our website and scroll down to the What's Happening section. We also just wanted to remind you that on July 2nd, we will not be having gatherings, but instead we'll be meeting at Four Winds Field for our second annual Southman City Church picnic. Lunch will be provided. We'll have some vegetarian and gluten-free options. There will also be some games and the splash pad will be open. So if you're local to South Bend, we would love to see you there. Speaking of important dates, today, as I'm speaking to you on Monday, June 19th, we wanted to take a minute to acknowledge and celebrate Juneteenth. While the Emancipation Proclamation was signed into effect in 1863, it took two and a half years for word to reach the farthest part of the territories, Texas. And so today, we honor and we celebrate the personhood and the freedom of our black brothers and sisters. You'll hear Jason talk a little bit more about this in his sermon today, but just wanted to say up front that we celebrate Juneteenth with all of you. Finally, if you consider South Bend City Church to be home for you and you would like to give financially to help everything happen around here, you can do so by going to southbendcitychurch.com slash give. That's also in the show notes below. And if you're interested in coming to the picnic and want to give as a way to make that happen, there's actually a fund there as well. You can also find other funds like the Tribune Project and Care Fund, but just wanted to thank you for all of the ways in which you show up and make things happen around here. Like I said, we're in week three of our Idols, Icons, and Tech series, and in spite of the dangers we've been learning about regarding the negative impact of digital devices and social media, it turns out that there are clear, positive ways to reverse that effect. And so this week, we learn that the spiritual problems and the spiritual possibilities of technologies are related. We're so grateful that you chose to join us today, and we're so thankful that you are part of our community. Let's join in with the rest of our community now. Amen. Uh, thank you, Zach and team. Uh, hey, my name is Jason. Good morning. Welcome. We're really honored that you're here. Uh, if we've not met, I would love to say hi to you after the gathering. We could find each other. It'd be great to put a name to a face and maybe hear your story for a bit. Uh, we're doing a teaching series. This is week three, and it's called Idols, Icons, and Tech. And we're talking about some of the spiritual currents that are flowing within and underneath our relationship with modern technology. Ironically, uh, today the slide computer has been a little fluky, and I'm starting to wonder if the technology is rebelling against us because we threw some shade at it. So I have my laptop up here in case I lose my slides and need the notes from them, but I'm going to put it over here so I'm independent and free of this device until I'm not free of it, which might happen. We'll see what happens. Uh, I want to check in with you all because last week uh, we threw some practices out there, some ways to take seriously what we were talking about and to carry it into our week. But before we do that, let's just kind of remind ourselves of where we've been. 
Uh, last week we explored how on the one hand, uh, there's a very serious and well-documented understanding of what many are calling behavioral addiction around our devices. And this is true, that more and more people are having a harder and harder time exercising independence from devices, whether it's uh, like social media apps on your phone, or whether it's streaming video, or whether it's gaming. There's a kind of wide array of ways that our devices have a pretty good grip on us. And we're also learning that um, there are really negative consequences for that. We're seeing plummeting levels of many measures of mental and emotional and even spiritual well-being. And there's more than tech reasons for that, but our relationship to technology has been well-documented as being part of that whole experience right now. In fact, in a microcosm, they can actually just study subjects and find out that the more time you spend on social media interacting with these devices, your odds are coming out of that experience, you're going to have lower measures of well-being than when you went into it. We're going to say more about that in a bit, and today is not all doom and gloom. In fact, today is really meant to move in a positive direction, but I wanted to remind you of where we were. Uh, we started with this kind of observation or warning about the ways that tech might be diminishing us, making us smaller, making us less well-off. We also observe that there is this growing body of research coming from researchers who sometimes don't even have any personal faith commitments, who are just documenting that people who report on having had some kind of experience of spiritual presence or connection to the divine or connection to God in other people, that all of those correlate to positive directions of mental, spiritual, and emotional well-being. So much so that, for example, people who would say, yeah, I, I experienced some kind of connection with the divine, that that corresponds to something like an 80% reduction in suicidality and addiction. Now, these are situations that are complex and every human life is complex and there's a lot of causes that affect us, right? So I'm not trying to paint everything with too broad a stroke, but on the one hand, we've got some real downsides associated in our relationship with technology. And on the other hand, we've got some real upsides associated with our capacity for spiritual presence. And we even wondered whether those two things might be connected a little bit, right? So the challenge uh, this past week was to go home and, and try to kind of moderate your relationship with your devices a little bit, and specifically to take advantage of a recommendation from one researcher who argues that your day already has these natural stoppages built into it. A stoppage is some kind of structure in time during your day that's already built in, meaning you're gonna have lunch, or you're gonna have dinner, or you're gonna you know, go from your car to your home, or your car to your workplace, or you're gonna enter your bedroom at the end of the night to go to bed, and because those already exist in your day, those are the best place to start if you want to moderate your relationship with technology. You could choose that maybe the dinner table is a place where your phone doesn't come with you. You don't have to build out new time in your day. You just have to use what's already there. So that was the recommendation. Take advantage of some natural stoppages. See if you can moderate your relationship with technology a little bit. And I wanted to check in on that. Uh, so a couple of questions for this open floor. First of all, um, maybe in the past week you did something to moderate your relationship with technology and devices? Uh, what did you do and how did it go? That's one question you could address here. Or maybe you've been doing something for much longer. Maybe you were way ahead of us and it's not like last week is the first time that you've been thinking about this. And maybe you or you and your family, your partner, your loved ones, your friends, maybe you already have some tactics for being more thoughtful about when you engage your devices and when you don't. That's great, we'd love to hear about that and how's it going for you. But thirdly, one other way you could address this is Besides like trying to minimize the device effect in your life, do you have any tactics for maximizing your experience of or capacity for presence? And by presence, I mean being present with yourself. I mean being present with others, often your loved ones, 
or I mean being present with God. So big, wide open floor. Any tactics for um, reducing the grip that your devices have on you that have been working, tell us how it's going, or any, any strategies or tactics for kind of increasing your capacity for presence. Who wants to share? Yeah. Nice. She got rid of the TV in her bedroom. Right now it's just white walls, but she's going to go for some artwork. When did you do that? How long ago? Um, I moved four months ago, but I just got a new apartment. Okay. So has it just been two or three weeks, or did you have it for the four months with no TV in the room? Um, I traveled in a van, so I couldn't have a TV. Oh, she traveled in a van. That sounds pretty great. How's it going for you? What's that been like? Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. So van life, you were in survival mode, which is a different kind of presence. Ultra aware. Ultra aware, yeah. But the bedroom, no TV. That's been good? Nice. Can I ask, did the calibration period take any time? Was it immediately great? Which part? The, t- the no TV in the room? Um, yeah, I guess so. It was immediately great. It's like relieving. Relieving. Relieving is an interesting word. Nice. Yeah, thank you. Who else? Yes, sir. Nice. Oh, interesting. Nice. Make sure I got this right. So two things. One is when you go to bed now, the phone stays out of the room and it's on silent. And in its place maybe or alongside that you're lighting a candle at night. Say, can you say a little more about the candle? Like what inspired the candle? Oh, that's smooth. I like that. So he was referring to the fact that um, he's got the candle that he does light in the room at night, and the phone's not in the room. And last week, we, one of the things we, we explored was there's a theory that um, back in our species history, fire early on represented like safety and food preparation and group uh, identity because you gathered around the fire and that the brain learned to recognize the difference between things that have light within them, which is like a fire, versus things that have light on them, which is why the, the idea goes that's one reason screens just grab you. And so I love this idea. Your theory was, cool, I'll go with the fire thing with the candle, but I'll get rid of the screen. Yeah, and you said that you have different kinds of dreams. You notice they're not anxious dreams. They're different kinds of dreams. That's fascinating. Yeah, thank you. What else? Yeah. <laughs> Let me get that far. Trish said that when she heard the sermon last week, her first thought was, oh, good, he's not speaking to me because my screen time is all spent with podcasts. <laughs> 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 Nice. So, as, so then Trish was listening to the podcast again, our, our podcast, and you were cleaning the house and you were thinking, I heard you say, I wonder if this um, sort of constant comparison game, do I have enough information or knowledge? 
and the negative effect that's having on you, is that tied to this podcast habit? Let me get that far. Trish was saying that in grad school, she developed what she described as a parasocial, which is a technical term, a parasocial relationship with these podcast voices, living alone. It's like, these are my friends. Yeah. yeah. Nice. And it was the conversations I had with myself were really hard. So I don't, I don't create space for stoppages or silence. I don't want that. Yeah, so the move this week included um, like not taking your, your earbuds to work, which is one place where you might listen to podcasts a lot. But then also at home, what if I listened to like one 30 minute podcast and then carved out like 30 minutes to have a conversation with myself? Yeah, it sucked. And it sucked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, are you glad you're doing it? She will be glad she's doing it. It's very honest. I love that. Thank you, Trish. Yeah, who else? Yeah, oh, uh, right here and then here. Um, I try to keep a book with me, whether it's in the car or in my bag. Like, if I get to work early, mm-hmm. I will sit in the parking lot and just scroll. Yes, so yeah. I'll just grab the book and read. Or if I go through laundry rather than just playing on my phone, like, I now will read during that time. Nice. Yeah, the move is to have a book with you at all times so that, for example, you get to work early or sitting in your car. If you don't have the book, you're just going to scroll. But the book, or whether it's like laundry time, having the book around is the hack. Yeah, love that. And how's it feel? Good. I'm getting a lot more reading. Good? Getting a lot more reading done? That's awesome. I love learning that I can use airplane mode, not on an airplane. Hey, Diana learned that she can use airplane mode, not on an airplane. Amen. That's awesome. They should replace the little airplane with like spiritual hands because it's like very spiritual. That's awesome. Uh, cool. Uh, well, I'll share a little bit of my own experience um, around both trying to kind of like moderate my relationship with my device and then also trying to carve out some space for presence. It's just one little anecdote. Um, it's very humbling to me. So uh, one thing I've been working to do is just carve out uh, like a 15-minute window each day for a little bit of presence and prayer. Um, it's not like super elevated or enlightened. It's just, it's like a window that I'm trying to carve out. And the way that I try to do that is uh, five minutes of just presence, just practicing presence. So just, just uh, I try to, for five minutes, recognize God is present and I am present. And I just try to kind of like be present to that with no content or conversation. And then I give myself five minutes uh, for anything I want, like five minutes to complain or to like ask for things or to like have a conversation with God. It's just an unfiltered space. Anything goes during that five minutes. And then I try to move to a final five minutes that comes back to just presence. Uh, I'm inspired by Mother Teresa who was asked uh, when she prays, what does, she, what does God say? Or what does she say? She says, no, I listen. And then she's asked, well, what does God say? She says, he listens. There's something to that, I think, right? So that's kind of inspiring this mode of prayer for me. But I, I think it's actually helpful with spiritual practices to put constraints on them. Like, so the five minutes matters. No more than five minutes for each of those movements. And so I found this, this app for my phone. It's just a timer. It's made, for, it's made for doing, like, laps, like in workouts and that kind of a thing. And so I can, you can set it for however many you want. So you get three rounds of five minutes each, and it just kind of chimes at the end of each five minutes. 
And to be fair, I put on airplane mode, spiritual hands. So I put my phone in airplane mode and I sit down on the floor and I put my phone next to me and I, you know, I start the timer and so it should ring after five minutes and after another five minutes and after a final five minutes and I'm sitting there for the first couple of weeks and the first day I do it, I'm like there and I'm sitting down and I think, oh no, the phone's broken. The app isn't working. Because surely it's been like seven minutes, eight minutes, 10 minutes. Is it accidentally on silent? Do I not understand how this app works? And then I look down. Any guesses? That's so sweet. 32 seconds. I wish I were kidding. And in that, there's a real reckoning for me, right? Now, there's no point. I'm not trying to shame myself up here. And if you are trying to shame me right now, how dare you? But I felt in that moment the truth of the fact that not all of us, but a lot of us are finding presence to be harder than ever. And these devices are doing some of that to our brains and our souls and our bodies. Now, uh, I said last week was a lot of doom and gloom, a lot of warnings. Today, I really want to get to um, the kind of positive possibilities because I think there's a way of orienting our relationship with technology, whatever tech you find most uh, compelling or addicting. There's a way to orient ourselves toward it in a way that's like very humanizing and empowering. I'm going to get there, but before I get there, I've got to go back a step because what I want to build this from is the idea that uh, a way of understanding the problem in our relationship with tech, that that's actually what's going to point to the possibilities of our relationship with tech, that these two things are going to be connected. Now, when I say the problem, one of the ways I've been trying to work that out with us the last couple of weeks is to invoke this biblical category of idolatry. Uh, idolatry is like one of the big warnings in Scripture. It seems to be one of the things God is most concerned about for God's people. And the problem with invoking idolatry is it gets preached in a lot of different ways. And sometimes it sort of makes God out to be um, just kind of like a little bit petty, you know. Uh, but I think there are deeper and more humanizing reasons that idolatry is a concern in Scripture. And these come back to how I'm connecting it to technology. And I'm going to try to work this out with you again today. Uh, but to, to build that case, let me go to one of the places in Scripture where idolatry is addressed. This is at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, like the Big Ten in Exodus, where God speaks through Moses and gives the people the beginning of the law that he wants them to follow. And at the beginning of the law, depending on how different, different traditions, both Jewish and Christian, uh, enumerate the commandments slightly differently, so depending on what tradition you're a part of, you might see it differently. But what I'm going to show you is usually considered the first two commandments in the Ten Commandments, and this is what we read. In uh, Exodus 20, verses 3 through 5, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the next part, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So no graven images, no other gods, no idols. Don't give yourself over to the worship of other deities or gods, right? Now, again, is this God being petty? I mean, to be fair, there are texts in the Old Testament that God sounds pretty petty. But I don't think that's actually what's going on here. And the case I want to make comes from what happens right before Exodus 20, verse 3, which is Exodus 20, verse 2, which says this. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The preamble to the law in the book of Exodus the first word of the law in the book of Exodus, the first thing that God says to these people, speaking from Mount Sinai through Moses, their leader, the first word of the law is liberation. It's God saying, I, I've made you free. 
That, that's the first thing God says. And then he, it's almost like, and therefore, like, don't lose that freedom. Don't give yourself back over to things that will make you small. Now, there's a lot of ways of defining idols, but some of the ways that you could define an idol, especially in the modern world, because most of us probably don't find ourselves in the kind of physical, concrete circumstances that might look like idol worship when you think about ancient idol worship. But you might be worshiping an idol if you are giving yourself over to something or someone or some power or system or structure that promises to liberate you but actually traps you. You might be giving yourself over to a kind of idolatry if you're giving yourself over to a, an idea or a system or a, an object or a power that promises to expand you but actually diminishes you and makes you small. And when I describe those sort of effects of technology, you might begin to hear the, the idolatrous sort of nature of what could be happening for a lot of us when we found ourselves sort of more and more carried along in attachments, addictions, and behaviors that aren't making us larger or healthier or more whole, they're actually making us less well, and you might even say less human. Now, I'm pulling from um, Exodus, which is a text that describes the experience of people who had been enslaved. And like Karen already mentioned, uh, tomorrow uh, we will honor and celebrate Juneteenth. And as I've been learning more about Juneteenth and the experience of those enslaved black Americans in Texas and reflecting on what it means for the larger experience uh, of those people in America, I just keep being struck by the sort of bittersweet nature of Juneteenth. Now, on the one hand, um, the kind of continued lament that it calls for, that it was so recent in our history that we decided that black Americans were persons and not property. And that is not ancient history. That's recent history here. And so I feel the lament of that. Uh, I certainly feel the celebration of the fact that we at least took one step in the right direction, for God's sake. Like, I, I feel the, the goodness of the fact that we took that, that step on that day, even though it was far too late and perhaps far too little, but it still happened, and that's good. Uh, but the other celebration, I think, of Juneteenth is to learn from and celebrate the creativity and the resilience of these black Americans, who for centuries under the burden of enslavement, still found ways to insist that they were more than that. Uh, to read about um, the cultural life of enslaved black Americans is to read about people who found all these profound, brave, and beautiful ways to say that we are not property, we are persons. I think we all have something to learn from that. Now, um, I'm talking about enslavement because um, the language of idolatry in, in Exodus connects it to their experience of liberation from enslavement. And I think there's a really important connection to be made here with tech. That being said, please hear me. Um, I don't intend in any way to suggest any kind of uh, analogous experience between the enslavement of black Americans and what you and I are facing with our devices today. So please don't hear me making such a tragic and irresponsible sort of comparison. But the, connect, the connection that I'm, I'm drawing here, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that we have a choice to make every day about whether we will think of ourselves and others as persons or something less. And then we can decide to evaluate everything through the lens of that matrix. We can evaluate technologies and laws and relationships and art and culture and experiences and family systems all through the lens of whether what we're building and how we're acting like presses into the fact that we are persons or somehow banks on something less than that and draws out something less than that. Uh, in the case of the actual enslavement of people I'm talking about, it was the, the 
deep sin of thinking of people as property and the absolutely urgent uh, reckoning with the fact that they were persons. I don't think most tech companies are in danger of thinking of us as property. Uh, I've already said it in the series, but I want to drive it further today. The problem with tech is that most of it sees you as the product, right? Remember this. If somebody gives you something for free, you are not the customer. You're the product. And most tech makes most of its money by selling your attention to advertisers, which means that when you engage in things like social media platforms, you're entering into a space that isn't built to honor your personhood. It's built to turn you into a product. This is just a fact. For example, in 2021, Facebook made $115 billion in revenue. That's just advertising revenue. They made $115 billion by selling your attention to companies. That's what that means. And here's what's even crazier. In 2026, uh, they're forecasted to go from $115 billion in ad revenue to $203 billion in ad revenue in just five years. That's almost doubling that revenue in almost five years. And what's crazy about that is nobody thinks that they're going to almost double their user base in those five years. It's not that they're going like, to get all the extra ad revenue by getting more sets of eyeballs on these screens. Because frankly, most people think that like, apps like Facebook have largely saturated the globe in terms of its current capacity for social media usage. And so it's not that they're going to get more human beings on their apps as much as they're betting that they're going to get better and better and better and better at selling your attention. And I, I know we're back to the warning part. I promise we're going to get to the good news. But you've got you to understand this, that, 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 that you're entering into spaces with technology that see you not as a person but as a product. And that's why they might promise to expand you, but they often diminish you. That's why they pr might promise to make your life better, but we have a lot of data that says in a lot of ways they're making our lives worse. And it comes down to the way that they uh, use all their tools to hold on to you and to get your attention and to keep you there. Um, speaking of, of, of this sort of uh, change in relationship to ourselves that's affected by technology, there's a sociologist who focuses on tech a person of faith named Felicia Wusong who's written a book called Restless Devices. And in that book, she describes it like this, both in her own words and using the words of a scholar named Jaron Lanier. This is from Felicia Wusong. Living according to the flow of social media and its digital practices means you implicitly accept, listen to this, a new spiritual framework. You've agreed to change something intimate about your relationship with your soul. As if to say, when you go along with these systems that treat you as nothing more than a product, you, you begin to sort of agree with them about the, the nature of you in your very own life, right? Uh, she goes on. The contemporary digital story not only competes against the spiritual frameworks that we profess, it also distorts and undermines our capacity to commune with God and others in the ways that we were created because it baptizes us, it immerses us, it names us, it promises to save us by bringing us into particular conceptions of time, place, relationship, and the human condition. Now that was a lot of words. Uh, let me give you a few words. There's a technology futurist named Kevin Kelly. He's the same guy that we had here on our stage during Idea Week a few years ago, one of the founders of Wired Magazine. And Kevin Kelly coined this phrase that I think is really helpful. He calls them bossy, technologies. Have you felt that you're getting bossed around by tech in your life? I mean, just, just think about 
the things that you've not explicitly chosen for the shape of your life that now shape your life because they've, they've, they've been able to kind of boss you around, right? Everything from um, the fact that they see you as a product, your attention as a product, to the kind of passivity that they kind of lull you into, right? Where you find out that you meant to scroll for five minutes and now it's been 50 minutes, right? That's bossy. Um, to the kind of... Um, engineering that's designed to trigger dopamine hits in your brain that keep you addicted in the exact same way that gamblers are addicted to slot machines. That's not a metaphor, that's actually what's happening, right? Uh, to fear, and the fact that many of these channels push a lot of fear on us because fear keeps our attention. Uh, in group identity, uh, these algorithms, if they wanna keep your attention, they're gonna do whatever you're most interested in looking at and things that reinforce group identity are things that you wanna look at. Let me work out those last two a little bit before we go into the good news. We're almost there. We're almost there. Um, fear and group identity. I, I know I talk about this stuff a lot. It is so profoundly important. It's all over scripture and it's all over the world that we're living in right now. So uh, your brain has all these different parts, right? You got kind of the, the, the base of the brain stem. This is where all the reptilian sort of animalistic stuff lives. And then you have these higher parts of the brain where all the capacity for enlightenment and inclusion and expansion lives, right? But you can even sense like in the biology of your brain that like the lower order stuff, you have to kind of like get through that to get to the higher order stuff, right? And there in the lower order stuff exists things like fear and group identity. A lot of people reason that the way that we got to this point is that you picture in the kind of evolutionary history of our species, uh, like Joe and John walking along in the woods one day, right? And Joe is sort of predisposed to pay more attention to threats than good things. And John is sort of predisposed to pay more attention to good things than threats. So Joe and John are walking along in the woods, and it just so happens that at the same moment in the woods, there's a saber-toothed tiger and a flower, <laughs> right? And John is just, oh, he's just captivated by the flower. You know, he gets down on the knee, and he, he just meditates on the beauty of it, and he had this kind of Buddhist enlightenment moment where it just, like, takes him to the highest level. But, but I forget which name is which now. Or who cares? The other guy sees the saber-toothed tiger and notices it, right? And he runs. Which of those two lives long enough to pass on his genes? The guy who sees the tiger. It's a funny scenario, but this is actually, in some sort of broad stroke, how people have come to understand where humans got to the point where we over-index fear and threat, we pay hyper-attention to it, we remain hyper-vigilant, and we under-index like goodness and beauty, and we, we have a hard time like savoring good things and experiences of safety, right? Same thing goes with group identity. Group belonging, like having your people, your group, your faction, in the very, very ancient experience of our species was connected to safety. Just like knowing who your people are and being a part of that circle and having the wagons circled is how you literally physically stayed safe. And to not be with your people or to not have your people or to not know who your people were was to experience literal and physical danger. And so again, just like with general fear, we develop this uh, fixation on group identity, on boundary markers, on who's in and who's out and who's with us and who's against us. And because these apps are largely concerned with keeping your attention and because our brains are more likely to pay attention to fear and groupism than we are to hope and love and joy and inclusion because those things don't threaten us, right? The apps are naturally algorithmically gonna trend in that direction. And in all of these ways, we end up being something less than the full persons, the full bearers of the divine image, the full icons that we're meant to be. But they're also 
uh, lies the actual good news. This might sound so simple, it's uh, frustrating, I know. You can choose to be more than a product in your relationship with your technology. You can choose to be a person. And I want to explain more about what I mean by that. Uh, Andy Crouch is also a theologian and a theorist who works on tech. And he, he's arguing that, like, personhood, like, what is a person? What does it mean to be a person? Uh, which is to say more than a product, more than a cog in the machine, more than somebody whose attention is valuable for the system. What does it mean to be a full person? He says that's maybe the biggest and most important question for our relationship with technology and the new technologies that we are shaping right now, including AI. What is a person? And to define a person, he goes right to the heart of Jesus' teaching, where he says in Matthew 22, in response to a question about the law, which is a way of saying what's most important in our experience of God and our own humanity, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And in parallel passages in the Gospels, he adds strength. Heart, soul, mind, strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, when you hear law and prophets, forget about religious things for a moment and frame this as a conversation about how to be fully alive and fully human. And Jesus says, first of all, you've got to bring all of yourself, heart, soul, mind, and even strength. You've got to bring your will, your capacity for connection, your desires, your emotions, your thinking, your intellect, you've got to bring all of that to the task of your living, and then you've got to offer it in love. And it turns out that when people get awake enough and conscious enough to bring like fullness of personhood to their interaction with these technologies, the statistics go in the other direction. This is also documented. So they can take subjects and put them in experimental situations where they're asked to perhaps spend an hour on social media. And for one group of subjects in the experiment, they simply lurk, they follow the discover feed, they just keep scrolling, whatever gets like spoon-fed to them, they just keep following it down the path, right? That's one experience. And in the other group of subjects for the experiment, they say, we want you to positively, consciously interact with everything that you see. So don't just, like, don't just passively take what's fed to you. Go out there and find the things that matter to you. Reach out to the people that you care about. Look for new experiences. Comment, like, encourage, send messages along the way. Don't be a passive product whose eyeballs are just being sold. Show up as a person. If you bring heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you actually bring a sense of personhood or agency to your relationship with these technologies and devices, we've got a growing body of data that says you will walk away from that experience better off. You will actually increase in measures of well-being when you stop going passively into these technological spaces and start showing up as a person in these technological spaces. Now, this makes sense to me because the fork in the road between idolatry and icons, between being diminished and being expanded, has a lot to do with like waking up and being our full selves, bringing our power, our voice, our intentions to the process. I've been experimenting with this uh, in one uh, simple way, for example. I've been trying to carve out little uh, like times uh, where I go on Instagram, which is the only social media I like to use. And my, my mission for this 10 minutes or 15 minutes is I'm only allowed to consciously and like personally interact. I'm not allowed to lurk. So that might mean that like the first post I see, 
Uh, it's, I don't know, a friend of mine uh, with their family in the picture, and they had a good day. I'm not allowed to just take that in. I, ha I have to do something. Uh, you would be amazed what it does for other people if you see them loving their people well and you just tell them. So I might like throw a comment or drop a DM to them and just literally say, hey, I love how you love your people. And what's crazy about that is I, I actually will walk away with better measures of well-being through that simple decision to show up heart, soul, mind, strength, consciously deciding that I'm not just going to be passively swept along in the, uh, the colonization of my attention, but I'm going to wake up and show up as a whole person and act like a whole person online. That actually makes the difference between these technologies being good for you or bad for you. Let me propose uh, this simple practice in a few different directions. The practice for the week ahead is this. Choose conscious engagement because persons are capable of conscious engagement. Products are not. Be a person with your device this week. Uh, here's five different ways that you could think about that. First, when you catch yourself lurking or mindlessly scrolling, put the phone away. Just put it away. Uh, just give yourself a timeout, right? Uh, put it in the next room. Don't just put it back in your pocket. Just do a little, little reset there, right? When you catch yourself lurking or mindlessly scrolling, put it away. Don't judge yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Don't hang your head. Don't think you're a bad person. I told you last week, it's not your fault. You're up against very sophisticated designs that are meant to, to get you to do this. So don't shame yourself, but put it away. Next option, turn off notifications. Did you know you can turn off notifications? There are some notifications that are genuinely good and helpful, right? You, you might want to hear when your phone rings or when a text message comes through. You might be in a line of work or in a relationship where it's important to get some notifications from your social media. But most of us have notifications coming at us that we don't need for any reason. And it just doesn't make any sense for you to be in the middle of whatever it is you're doing and get pinged to find out what Susie said to Daisy on Facebook about the color of her dress yesterday. It just doesn't make sense, right? That doesn't need to like interrupt your day. So turn off the notifications. Next, don't just consume, contribute. Show up as a person, like, like bring something. You don't have to be impressive. You don't have to have everybody liking your post. But when you show up, they show up to, to be in relationship with the people that these devices are connecting you with. Don't just consume, contribute. Uh, if you see a post, say something nice about it. I know that might sound almost so cheesy as to be naive, but it actually makes a difference. Be a person there, not just a lurker. Don't just consume, contribute. And then this one. Confound the algorithm. Yeah. This is one of my favorites. So I already began to work this out for you, right? That to keep your attention, what often ends up happening is the, al the algorithm is going to present you uh, things that make you afraid or things that reinforce a singular group identity. Um, you know, the real tragedy of the internet is that it's technically capable of connecting us more than ever across different lines of experience and social location. I mean, the gift of the internet is that you can learn from and be in contact with all kinds of different people, with all kinds of different worldviews and experiences. That could be so beautiful, but it's not what usually happens because they don't care about making you better. They care about making money, and they do that by getting your attention. But you can choose to parent your technology rather than you being parented by your technology. Did you know that? You can choose to bring your agency, your will, your strength, your convictions, your love to the task. And if you do this thoughtfully enough for long enough, you will confound the algorithm and it will start to send you different kinds of things. I've been messing with this on my Instagram. 
My discover feed can look like different things on different days, the things that it thinks that I want to see. But the more that I proactively open up that app and think, I don't know, who's a person or a kind of person or a voice or a story that I've not heard from? Could I go out there and find it? You can, right? This doesn't just apply to social media, by the way. Even your search engine is not neutral. This is true. If, if I open up my computer from my IP that Google knows is coming from me and I put the same search terms in that you put in on your computer with your IP, you might get different results than me because even on Google, it's not neutral. But you can confound the algorithm. Like, stop letting it act on you and get on there and act on it, right? Decide that you're going to make sure that you use these profound and powerful tools as ways of reaching over lines of bias and division and groupthink into other spaces to understand different people with different experiences and different stories to tell. And if you do that, once again, you might find that your capacity to show up heart, soul, mind, and strength in love, your capacity to be an icon, an image bearer, to be the kind of person who makes things better in the world rather than just kind of going along with the brokenness of the world, it will expand as you do that. And then you will find these technologies are not your enemy. They can be your friends. Another way of saying it is an idol is a something that was meant to be a servant that became a master. And this is you deciding that you will be the person that like, oversees what this tech does in you and for you. And then lastly this. If you're having a hard time adapting your usage, take a total break in order to reset. Like, shut it down, give it a minute, and then wade back in incrementally. I know of very few people who actually, materially, substantially need to be on social media. That's not, that, it's not 100%. There are some people because of your work or because it's, it really is the lifeline of connection that you need with someone. That is some, but I know of very few people who have to be on social media. And yet I keep like discovering um, that we're like terrified of, like, of, of cutting that tether for even a moment. But I got to tell you, it could do you a ton of good just to kind of take a reset. Last year on my sabbatical, I took three and a half months without Instagram. That was scary for me. I, I had these existential fears. Like, will I matter? <laughs> right? Like, like if, I, uh, if I had a great experience with my friends at a concert, but I don't post about it, is anybody there to see it? It's like the tree like, falling in the woods, right? Like, like, do I exist anymore, right? And those kinds of fears actually come up. It was so good for me, and it brought me back to life, able to kind of re- approach my relationship with these things. If you're having a hard time, this is the same with anything else in your life, right? Relationships, substances, devices, technologies. If you're having a hard time bringing intentionality and consciousness to it, step away for a while. Take a total break and do a reset. Now, speaking of practices, uh, I hope that we'll do some of that on our own this week. Next week, we're going to uh, engage in a communal practice. Uh, from the beginning of South and City Church, uh, we wanted to be a community that doesn't just preach, we practice, that we actually do the things together that we're talking about. And so next week, uh, in three different ways, we're going to offer an opt-in screen-free Sunday. Uh, what that means is, first of all, when you arrive next week for the gathering, you will be welcome to, but not expected to, uh, turning your phone to a phone check. We're going to have a phone check on the other side of that curtain there. Our Gruder team's going to help us with that. We've got a system in place that's going to keep your phone safe. We'll know that it's your phone. You will get your phone back at the end of the gathering. I promise. We feel very good about this. I was advised by the staff to not use the phrase, surrender your device. I don't care. I think you should surrender your device. <laughs> um, 
We also know that there are members of our, people, our community here in the gathering who for very serious reasons can't, whether it's a professional responsibility or somebody in your life who needs to be able to reach you at all times. We completely get that. So again, this is why it's totally opt-in and we're not gonna judge the people who don't. In fact, we're just gonna assume that you're very important if you can't surrender your device, right? Um, but that's one option is you'll be able to surrender your device. And as you do that, I would encourage you, just observe what that feels like. Is it easy, scary, hard, pleasant, enjoyable? Just don't judge any of the feelings, just, just observe them. And I wonder what you might learn about your relationship with your device when you consider surrendering it for that short period of time, right? So that's the invitation uh, with the phones, with the devices there. We're also gonna turn off the screens in the gathering and have printed programs for the liturgy. Um, we used to do that every week before we had TVs and we did uh, sort of mobile church, and we're going to do that again next week just to kind of go a little bit further in the lack of screens. And then also our kids are going to have a no screen Sunday in kids ministry, so pray for the kids ministry volunteers, <laughs> right? Uh, that's the practice next week, and I don't know what to expect. I don't know on an individual level and a communal level what will happen with that. It might be a small shift. You might just feel a kind of incremental difference individually. I also kind of wonder if we might feel a collective uh, sort of incremental difference. It might be 1%, 3%, but I wonder if the atmosphere might change a little bit as we leave those devices behind and choose a, like a, a heightened level of presence with one another here. So that's happening next week. Now to wrap this up, I thought I would, uh, in a sort of an act of confession and solidarity, describe to you um, one particular experience in my recent life where these two energies of um, idolatry and image bearing, of idol and icon, of tech doing its best in me and through me and doing its worst and kind of feeling them side by side, just so you know that like, this is very real for me too. Um, so I've got this book coming out in August and there was a, there was a day when publishers thought it was their job to sell your book. That's no longer the case. They think it's your job to sell your book. And so I have meetings every week with my publisher where they tell me how well I'm doing on my social media, using my social media to grow my follower count and to sell my book. Whatever you think about that, believe me, I've thought it too. But that's, that's where it's at and every line of work and every pursuit has sort of complicated negotiations and this is one of them. And so. Uh, for the last few weeks, I've been acting differently on social media than I usually am, because usually I don't do a lot, and to be honest, I'm mostly a lurker. Uh, but, but, but here I am um, trying to get the word out about this book. And so uh, on the one hand, I came at this um, feeling very strongly. I wanted to do this in a way that felt right to me, that felt good to me, um, that felt authentic to me. Um, and so some of that's not about right and wrong as much as it's just like what's true to me. Uh, I di didn't want to do a lot of hype. Um, stuff that feels like pure promotion doesn't feel that great to me, but substance feels good to me, right? Like the point of writing a book is to give something to the world. That's the whole point. It's to create something that I hope will help other people. And so you labor, in, in my case, for years over these words. And it's really fun now to get to share some of those words because I hope they will do something in people and for people. So on the one hand, you know, every few days I get to kind of like leaf through my book and try to find a paragraph or a sentence or an idea that I hope on its own, even if you don't buy the book, will be good for you, will like crack your heart open a little bit or move you one inch toward freedom or healing. And so that's been like really, really joyful for me. And I can feel in that the power of these mediums. Like 
when before now could you just in a moment of, of thought like offer something out there and you know, get a note from somebody in Australia or on the continent of Africa saying like, hey, that helped me or I have a question about that. What a powerful, wonderful thing to say, hey, I've got something to try to offer, to try to give. That is heart, soul, mind, and strength trying to be offered out in love. And, and I've, I've noticed the way genuinely that I feel a little more human and I hold my head a little bit higher when I do that work of showing up that way, right? But then there's the other side of this thing where all of the technological design that's meant to, to grip me, that turns me into a product just sort of like, like begging for more of what it gives me is like really powerful. So there's the day a little while ago where I make my first big splashy social media post announcement. I say, hey world, I wrote a book and it's coming out and here's the heart behind it. And you guys, for the next 18 hours, oh my word. I rode the dopamine wave of affirmation. My phone is blowing up with shares and comments and likes. I'm like, this is like better than a drug high. To which some of you are thinking, how does Jay know what that feels like? To which I say, mind your own business. But anyway, I mean, I, it's like, it's like my, ba my brain is bathing in a, in a hot tub of dopamine, just like wonderful affirmation. And can I tell you something? After about 18 hours and the algorithm thought I was no longer relevant and moved on to other things, <laughs> genuinely, I felt much lower than I did before it started. That's how this works. By the way, that's how addiction cycles are created, right? And I'm serious, right? That's how it happens, right? So I come at this thing, I, and on the one hand, I get to give something to the world that I've worked my tail off on, and I hope it's good for you, and I hope it's beautiful. And this is all of us in all sorts of ways, trying to bear the image of God and be icons. And then on the next moment, man, it gets its claws into me. And I can feel in real time the fact that this effect and the way that I feel a little bit um, powerless in the face of it, this effect, uh, it diminishes me. You know, and somehow a thing that you didn't even know that you needed a, a day before, all of a sudden you want more of, right? And I, I remember like in those first few days of promoting the book, just realizing that, I don't know if anybody else needs this, but I need this conversation on how it is that we don't allow ourselves to be diminished and made less human by these devices and technologies. But we, I, I don't think we should just ignore them because they're, they're capable of incredible good. But I want to be the parent in my relationship with my technology. I want to be a person showing up in these technologies, not just sort of passively dragged along. And so uh, I really hope that you'll choose some of these practices for conscious engagement this week. Uh, to help yourself like, show up as a whole person, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because when you do that, beautiful and powerful things can happen. Uh, that's it for today. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? Uh, next week, we're going to get uh, into artificial intelligence. Uh, we're going to ask some big questions about the good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful. Uh, where we are and where we might be headed with all of that. So that'll be kind of a big think. But then after all of that abstract and esoteric thinking, we're going to come to the communion table uh, in our No Screen Sunday, which I think will be a really powerful way to anchor ourselves back in the flesh and blood experience that we are having as a community. So that being said, uh, may you know that you are nothing less than a person. That God has endowed you with heart and soul and mind and strength. And may you know that your neighbors and even your enemies and every global citizen is a person endowed with heart and soul 
and mind and strength. And may we bear the image of God in our relationship with these beautiful and awful and wonderful and challenging technologies for the benefit of others and for the world. May grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week for No Screen Sunday.